0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Welcome everybody, it's Brendan here and I'm here with Mark, the Vet Gurus, Vet Gurus. and it is the weekend in July the 27th, 2018. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to promote us to your friends. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies maybe as well, Mark. I've probably got more enemies than friends these days, I think, Mark. Um, And we love subscribers. We love new subscribers, so go to vetgurus.com to join up. And if you enjoy our little podcast, then maybe even think about becoming a patron or one of our major sponsors. And we, for those of you who are new listeners, we do have two major sponsors, and that is Chemical Essentials and... Also, Oxbow Australia, um, which is run by Jennifer. And I think, Mark, you just wanted to talk about one of their products. We're talking off-air, and it's a bit of a product placement, I think, um, because they have provided some funds to help keep our podcast going, and we thank them very much for that. But you wanted to chat about one of the products that um, Oxbow Australia or Oxbow provides that those who don't deal with unusual pets very often may not know about this product, and what is that product, Mark?
0: Brendan, I wanted to talk about um, the, uh, the the essential pellets um, that Oxbow make for adult guinea pigs. Um, I think that a lot of our clients don't realise that there are nutritional re- differences in nutritional requirements between guinea pigs and rabbits, and oftentimes they just get uh, lumbered into the... Um, the same category, um, but um, we uh, we use lots of the adult guinea pig food. We sell lots of the adult guinea pig food. Um, it's uh, um, a high fiber. It's particularly good with uh, because it has that um, relatively low calcium. A lot of the um, supermarket pelleted foods are based on lucerne and have a relatively high. Calcium load, so we know that they're um, going to um, put some pressure on the guinea pigs to excrete them and potentially cause problems. Um, So this specific preparation, um, uh, we we just um, we love recommending it to our clients, and it's one of those things where we do appreciate the support that um, Oxbow Australia provides for us, but. um, you know, it's. would we, I'd be saying the same thing even if they didn't. I have no trouble recommending this product. The other thing that uh, that is really useful, and now are our clients, um, sort of most of the clients that are looking for this sort of stuff, um, they're, they're they're very keen to make sure the use by dates are um, are consistent because we all know that vitamin C even stabilised vitamin C breaks down relatively quickly. And so um, the expiry dates are really, really important so that we know those guinea pigs are getting the vitamin C that they can't produce themselves. Brendan, I can't recommend Uh, it highly enough.
1: Yes, we certainly um, supply that or, or, or have that available in our clinic and we highly recommend it. And, yes, it is a very good product. Regardless of whether or not they were a sponsor or not of the show, I would still be having that in my clinic and recommend it both all well all the Oxbow um, products as well, as well as our other main sponsor, which we will talk about maybe a little bit again next week. Mark, what have you been up to this week? I'm going to dump you in it again, oh, as usual, okay. Mark, <laughs> um, off the top of my head, and ask you any interesting cases or non-veterinary things you've been up to that you want to well, this let our listeners know about.
0: Two very interesting things I've done this week. Um, the first one has been at work. We had, um, unfortunately, a um, one of the local collared uh, Sparrowhawks, the accipiter birds of prey, um, was clipped by a car, and so we worked desperately hard to try and save that bird's life. We, they're pretty special uh, birds of prey, and um, and unfortunately, uh, it had trauma to its shoulder and elbow of such severe nature once we radiographed it that we um, elected not to put it through anymore. They are very stressful birds um, and so unless we can get them well relatively quickly, um, we we generally find that long-term captive care is often associated with uh, failure to be able to be released. So if we can't get them well quick, um, we don't uh, put um, put them through it and unfortunately with these injuries that's what we had to do and my other thing was that um, the Regent honey eaters have returned to the Hunter Valley I was uh, able to shoot up to the wonderful Hunter Region Botanic Gardens and they have some be- beautiful big black butts uh, in the grounds there and um, and those trees regu- are not routinely used by Regent honey eaters but Four of them have set up shop in these uh, good old blackbutts and um, and they were feeding uh, extensively. The first that have been um, seen in New South Wales since January, these four birds. So I was able to get up there and get some photos of them. Bit of a pleasant afternoon on Sunday. So twitching and looking after birds of prey has been my week, Brendan.
1: You always like a bit of twitching, don't you, Mark? And uh, you always tend to twitch a bit when I'm around. And I don't know whether that's you getting a little bit too much coffee from all the coffee places I take you to, Mark, or it's you just wanting to get back out there and do a bit more twitching with your birds. Um, And I must admit, I keep saying it every week, Mark, I I see a couple of the posts of the pictures that you are taking and they just keep getting better and better, Mark, better and better. Have you printed off any of the um, recent um, photos you took on your trip to Tassie?
0: No, I haven't yet. And and I do think um, we've had this discussion before, I think, um, that um, just some of those Tassie ones have just reached the threshold where I think I would be happy to print them. And I think um, when you, as I am, learning to become a better photographer, um, that that's a really important, uh, um, you know, step to be able to see the, um, the images not on a computer but on the wall, Um you know, I think that's uh, uh, a, an excellent learning experience. Fo- refocuses you, so so I think I will, Brendan. I particularly think I will with some of those. Good,
1: because I think seeing them printed out. Um is amazing and that's what we really need to do. And I I know you've seen a couple of the prints that I um printed off of all the thousands that didn't work um, and a couple that did work and just seeing them sitting there in your lounge room is what makes me want to then get out there again and spend another 2,000 um, shots before I get one more that I can put up in the lounge room again, Mark. Yeah, so get print in and get them up in your lounge room or in the bedroom or wherever you end up putting them up or Kate lets you put them up.
0: Well, I've got to say, Brendan, I've, I've got to quickly say that um, when we did, we, you know, we, we had the pleasure of visiting your house and seeing your prints. And um, if anything, it's put me back a little bit because, you know, you want to achieve a certain standard before you um, outlay the money to get a decent print. And, um, and yeah, um, to see the quality that you've uh, – You've been able to generate. Well, I've had to wait till I, a little bit longer till I felt I got there.
1: Uh, I think your um, your photography skills are way above mine at the moment, Mark, because I haven't been doing much in the last year or so. So you've rocketed way past me, Mark. But let's um, let's not talk about us and let's talk about some fun news stories and. Speaking of birds, you want to talk about drunk seagulls?
0: I definitely do um, and I do before I talk about the seagulls in question, I just want to shout out to our um, our uh, apprentice uh, research um, officer um, here at uh, the vet gurus um, uh, Dr. Doug Black, um, who is what was a star of one of his own pod, you know one of our podcasts. Um, a few weeks ago but um, Doug has been sending us uh, an excellent number of um, uh, additional stories which you know to be honest they've um, they've spread the emotions. You know how we seem to have some of those ones that are uh, 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 entertaining and some of them that are um, a bit serious. Well Doug's given us a whole bunch of new ones so shout out to Doug and thank- keep it up Doug. We want them. We want more. Um, but this one the, in the UK, um, the RSPCA was called to a, a bunch of um, seagulls that had been spotted um, vomiting and struggling to walk in straight lines. Now, they should have been the first cues, first clues... Um, the RSPCA had uh, more than a dozen calls regarding the birds and um, and they uh, initially thought that maybe they could have had something like botulism or that they'd been um, inadvertently poisoned, but it seems that the birds had been accessing um, some of the waste um, from the local breweries, some of the, the um, well, leftover hops, I expect, um, and, of course, they were uh, getting drunk. Um, fortunately... <laughs> after they were picked up by the RSPCA, um, they uh, they had a quiet night in a dark place and a couple of them um, vomited. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the RSPCA, of, uh, RSPCA officers felt that the birds made their cars stink like pubs. Um, so there would have been some uh, cleaning out of bird vomit from some of the vehicles that were picking the birds up. Um, unfortunately, as is the case with many Uh, avian alcohol poisoning cases. Some of the birds um, passed away, but um, most made a sterling recovery and were released a few days later. Um, The key message here is the RSPCA is urging all the local breweries, distilleries and alcohol producers to check that their waste is secure and cannot be accessed by wildlife or birds.
1: Yes, or maybe... um been a little bit careful about um, also feeding them too much chips as well. Um, I don't know about you, Mark, but I've lost count of how many times I've been down the beach areas and people are throwing, trying to actually hit most of the seagulls, I think, most of the time with with their chips from their little bag of the fish and chips that they've got um, with them. So I think um, they're a little bit dangerous for the birds as well, aren't they, Mark, the old um, salted chips? Um, spend more time eating them yourself rather than throwing them at the birds. Okay. Um, yes, great little story, and thanks, Doug. Yes, he's um he keeps firing all these um quirky little news items our way, Mark, and I think we've got a. A good list of them um, sitting there now that we have can draw on when our reserves are exhausted, which doesn't take very long, does it? Um, so we can draw on, draw on Doug's help. So thanks, Doug, and um, keep sending them our way. Um, now the next one, I don't know whether Doug sent us this one as well or not. I'm not quite sure. I think I may have found this one, but Doug... Well no doubt correct me if he um if he did send it our way. But I thought it was quite a quirky one, Mark, and that is the it was in um uh, the com at the dot com, which I know you are an avid reader or watcher or listener when they have videos as well. It's a, it's a um internet or website um um journalistic publication and the case for introducing rhinos to Australia and the topic sort of caught my eye. Um, but when you read through the article, it, it's making some very good points and also providing some quite depressing statistics and information, Mark, about um, rhinos and their habitats and the lack of rhino species. Um, and I know for long-term subscribers, we've spoken a fair bit about rhinos in the past. They're probably one of my favourite um species rhinos um but I was quite shocked for, um, by some of the extra statistics that are in this article that I that I didn't know and and the obvious one it, there is that one of the reasons is or uh, well, the big reasons is the um, poaching for the for the horns of rhinos and I just was blown away by the um how much they are worth, Mark. I didn't realise that um rhino horns are potentially worth up to three hundred thousand dollars each. Um I knew they were um very valuable for the for the um, black market trade and for the um supposed medicinal uses. But gee, that's a lot of money, isn't it Mark? Um with um with, um, no wonder they keep being poached, but we're back to, what, five species of rhinos in the world, two in Africa and three in Asia, and um, apart from the collapse in um, habitats with them, um, this article talks about the possibility, hey, what would, we, what would people think, and should we be having rhinos in Australia? And when I first thought of this article and I read the first couple of paragraphs, I thought, gee, this is what is you would call the clickbait article, Mark, that um, you see quite a quirky or an interesting article, but um, the article is not very good. But when you read through it a little bit further on, it is not recommending that we have wild rhinos roaming around Australia. It is um, considering the possibility that um, maybe we should be thinking about breeding up some of these critically endangered species in semi-wild or or um, semi-enclosed areas. Um, And for something like a rhino, it's obviously going to need a a pretty big habitat. Um, And considering some of the savannah type areas in Australia that we could could, um, maybe potentially have rhinos um, roaming around and breeding them up. Um, Having said that, my personal opinion is I, I don't think it would work, Mark. Um, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on it. But it was a bit of a thought-provoking article, I think.
0: It is a thought-provoking article, Brendan, and and it brings to mind the you know up here in the Hunter, we're very lucky to have the um, the Devil Ark project, um, which um, is is um, really uh, at the moment being quite successful at um, at uh, producing a population of. Um, Tasmanian devils unaffected by the the um, horrible tumor they get, and so it is a pretty decent insurance population um, removed from other populations, and and so I can sort of see why having cases like that, where there is um, on on islands or in particular locations where the the circumstances are favourable to try and uh, produce some of these insurance populations, um, but I, I think rhinos do present us with some very particular um, complications. they there, at size to start with, um, and uh, and even though in Australia we have a fairly um, uh, a fairly powerful system of protecting wildlife, I think um, uh, a open range park with um, rhinos that had each were worth as you said 300,000 um, it would be a nightmare to try and control that sort of arrangement um what did you see some other faults in this this idea well i, I mean the if
1: if you read down towards the end of the article it does does basically suggest that it's a bit of a tongue in cheek article although it does link to a couple of really interesting other um sites and, and, and um um organisations and one of them is called the Australian Rhino project. I don't know whether you've seen that one, Mark, um which is um a group of individuals but also it's it's sponsored um by or at least um maybe not sponsored, but um, the um, University of Sydney, um, the Toronga Conservation Society Zoo, South Australia and a few other places um, um, are involved with it, um, trying to give rhinos a future in Australia. And and that particular group, the Australian Rhino Project, does talk about the possibility of... um, um, you know be, becoming guardians of rhinos and, and and does mention about the possibility of um, um, something like this particular situations but I think well uh, I, I, I just worry about the usual with it you know it's a it, it's. it's you know how one, how practical is it going to be? What does happen? It, it, can they constrain this particular species if if we do have them in a supposedly semi wild state? Um, are we going to end up a, um, something a bit like what you always um, your favourite movie, Mark Jurassic Park um, and the Jurassic Park series, where we have what, rhinos um, running wild um, throughout all Australia and um, caught wreaking havoc? Mark, um, that's my particular
0: concern with it. Very, you know, using that documentary Jurassic Park as a guide, it is, um, it is a genuine concern.
1: <laughs> yes. So, but no, I, I think it was a bit of a tongue in cheek article. Um, and yet it made me think about things about that, you know, what are the particular ways that we could save some of these critically endangered species? And I know we have spoken about it several times about the, the options. At what point? Do we decide, okay, that that particular species it, it is not going to survive no matter what we do? When do we pull the plug on that animal? Do we pull the plug on that species and, and not um, not spend any time, effort, and money in trying to let that uh, keep that species alive? And, and do we spend more time on, on another species that we think we can bring back from the brink? Um, and I always struggle with that sort of um, concept, you know, when do we decide it's time to to give up on on one particular species? Um, you know, maybe the species we should be giving up on, Mark, is the human species yeah, and, right. and just leaving all the others to um, to do their thing. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm getting into one of my deep, dark areas I mean, again, Mark. They all so. will be
0: upset if it is you are turning into a dark. she
1: she will she will well let's jump onto something a bit more a bit more light-hearted or a bit more in um a bit more upbeat and that is the discovery of a new species and what is that oh
0: this this story um which we've we've actually pulled from a uh mainstream media news source news.com.au that's one you usually frequent isn't it brendan um and and they um They've, uh, Brian Fry and his team, um, who have been searching up and around the uh, the um, tropical seas, they've been trying to um, do research on sea snakes. But um, as they were coming back through uh, Weeper, they did manage to find uh, um, some uh, bandy bandies. Bandy bandies are burrowing snakes um, that feed on, generally, they feed on um, uh, uh, the Typhlops, the the uh, other the the, um, worm snakes, Um, and so they're a very specialised snake. And uh, and after analysis, once these snakes were brought back to the laboratory, um, uh, they were identified as a distinct species from the uh, the other bandy bandies we see around eastern Australia. Now they are that I know in this news story. This is a classic because. uh, in many of the ways they were, um, you know, the, the, the uh, lead was if we didn't already have enough dangerous animals, scientists have discovered another venomous snake species. Um, and the bandy-bandy is technically venomous, but um, they're not at all dangerous to humans. So um, talking about your clickbait, that was an interesting point. Um, the snake is uh, um, has been found in museum Collections once they've identified it as a different species, um, and look, I think this is one of those ones where we had a bit of an idea there might be some variations some mm. in, uh, in the the different types of bandy bandies, and this one is actually amounted to a distinct species. So I think um, calling it a discovery of a new species, yeah, we sort of knew that that might be the case. But the really good news is that um, Brian Fry's group. Um, the main thing they do, the reason they were looking for the sea snakes, the reason they're pleased to find a different species of bandy bandy is they um, work with the venoms and look to find uh, new chemicals that might be used as pharmaceuticals. So every species uh, of venomous snake is precious to them and precious to us as humans because we never can know where um, the next wonderful pharmaceutical might come from, the next class of drugs that might be a fresh type of antibiotic or a, um, a possibly a cure for one of those sorts of cancers so um, it's great they keep doing this it's an excellent story um, the the uh, we just got to hope that they keep getting out there and finding new reptile species to generate these this research and drugs from Brendan
1: definitely and that's a beautiful segue into our last news story isn't it Mark Um, and that is an article on the conversation.com again and the title of the article is "Is animal research is it a necessary evil Um, so it fits in quite well with the end of your little tale about that new venomous snake species Mark and um, yeah again there's some quite some interesting things here and there's a little bit of a um, Story I can tack on with this, Mark, um, that you might find of interest at the end there. So if I don't talk about it, then you need to prod me um, and you'll know when we've talked about it um, because you will say, gee, that's interesting. And it's about, um, I was invited to um, help get involved with a particular project. So um, just make sure I talk about it um, at the end of this article. If I don't get caught up with all the statistics in the article, um, and this um, talk, this particular article by Clara McKenzie, and it suggests that almost four million scientific procedures are carried out in 2016 on animals. And you know, most people think about them going to be um, primates that are involved, and dogs um, and and cats potentially um, where um, animal research is undertaken. But the majority of these were reported to be on mice which is no surprise, I suppose, 73%, but 14% fish, 6% rats, and 4% birds, Mark, um, as well. And, you know, um, when you look at it, that is a fair number, isn't it? It's 4 million scientific procedures carried out in 2016 alone. And when we dive into the deeper into the article, they, they, they a close examination of the numbers um, reveal several interesting things. Um, one is that they're talking about um, the cephalopods, so animals with backbones, but there are trillions, literally trillions of invertebrates such as insects and worms and mollusks, um, which are used by, uh, for research as well, um, every year. So, um, which they haven't included in those statistics that I just mentioned at the start there. So, because historically invertebrate species are thought to have less developed sensory systems. And I know you and I have discussed this, um, several times at several different, um, watering holes in the past, Mark, haven't we about the, um, the, um, the feeling of nociception or, or, or the feeling of pain, or, or whether or not um, animals feel pain, or any sort of sentient or, or any particular living organism feel pain. And I think we, we both sort of agree in that. Um, if in doubt, assume it does feel pain. So um, I just find it fascinating that they didn't include all these invertebrates, supposedly trillions of them that are involved in um, research as well, Um, So, um, which is a bit sad. um, But the the, the, the more personal story that sort of fits in with this, out of the blue about a month ago, and I don't think I mentioned this to you, Mark, um, I was approached to help develop... um, a model um, by a big international organisation for um, for teaching um, science students and, and um, medical students and veterinary students. Um, so a non-animal model, so basically um, a dissection model um, that that most first or second year university students need to dissect various animals. Um, and they're trying to develop a, a, a realistic model that you cut into the skin of this particular animal and then you poke around and, and fish out all the organs. And there, um, it isn't the actual species involved. I'm not going to mention what the species is. Um, That's so
0: cool. Um, that, and, uh, that yeah. Cool. So,
1: so I said, why the hell are you asking me? Because my expertise with that particular species, although I do have some, um, um, interest in that particular species, Um, I don't think I have much or high expertise in it. Um, Why are you asking me? But I'd love to get involved. So I'm waiting to hear back from them as far as um, they're they're waiting to get the first... um, alpha model of that um, um, dissection model up and going and um, then they're going to contact me further and we're going to have a bit of a chat about um, how we could make these little models more realistic so it's getting back to sort of what this um, article talks about and it's the old um, the three R's the replacement reduction and the refinement um, of the use of animals um, in animal research and I don't know whether you have, Mark. I think you have been on an animal ethics committee, and I've—I I've, was on an animal ethics committee for several years, and um, you know that's one of the big things you're always looking at with people going out to um, catch animals, or to tag animals, or to 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 study them out in the wild and release them, or even animals um, for research—is um, to try and make sure that you know other alternatives to it to replace. Re- Reduce the numbers or, or refine the methods of, of dealing with these animals, which includes making sure that we're we're providing adequate analgesia for them. So, so yeah, that's um that's why this particular article caught my attention, Mark. Um, two things: one is the the numbers of reported um, animals that were used for research, um, but also the the lack of reporting of all the invertebrates that are also used for for research and. Um, the use of these sort of models um, in in um, in training for um, future veterinarians and and future um, future doctors and, and scientists. Um, have you um, well, thought, had any dealing with those sort of
0: models? I have right? not, um, and I'm really excited that um, that you've been asked to contribute to the design of one because I think they will form in the future either those physical models or vi- virtual reality ones will form a significant. Um, component that does reduce the number of actual animals that are involved in um you know supporting veterinarians at least through their their course brendan i've got a a question to ask you because i have only been i've been peripherally involved in um a number of uh ethics committees at um a number of institutions um and one of the things that struck me and i'm really keen on your opinion about this was that they they unlike what People might think, uh, after having listened to things in the mainstream media, um, that my experience with those committees is that they are exceptionally diligent at um, at trying to maintain the the best possible welfare and outcomes for the animals that are involved. Um, I've been involved a couple of times where researchers have made presentations um, under. Particular understanding, and when they've had a discussion, and uh, it's been suggested to them that you know that maybe that uh, understanding of concerning how much an animal might feel pain is not true, they've always been really accepting of the the um, advice and, and looked into the research themselves. I, I've found it an area. That really, the I think that's one part of animal welfare that's working really well. The ethics committees of many of the large institutions, um, they really do an outstanding job. I, I would, I would be interested in your opinion, Brendan.
1: I th- I think they have improved a lot over the years, especially the last ten or ten or fifteen years, um, perhaps twenty years, um, where at one stage. I was going to say they're a bit like a rubber stamp organisation, um, um, bureaucracy sort of um, process. Early on, with, with some of them, um, um, they've 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 improved out of sight, and I and I think the way the regulations have changed and the and the way that these. Ethics committees are structured is is a hell of a lot better than and what it used to be, and so generally, yes, I, I think they do a, a very good job. And um, having said that, I, I must admit I found it very challenging at times um, because we had different viewpoints within the within the committee. Um, I had sort of my veterinary viewpoint. Then you might have a zoologist. Then you would have a non-veterinarian. Um, person viewpoint and perhaps somebody like a legal representative as well and and, um, once you get in all these different views um, obviously at some stage you um, may have disagreements and um, you have to come to consensus with things but but overall yes you do spend a hell of a lot of time debating and and sometimes even arguing about um, what's right for the animal which is which is right for the animal. Um, um, making sure that you're spending lots of time thinking about, hey, what's the best way of approaching this particular thing? Um, because the whole, the title of this, um, little committee we have is Animal Ethics Committee and, and we should be thinking about doing the right thing for the animal. So, so yeah, I think, I think they've, 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 they've improved in leaps and bounds over, over what they used to be like. And, and yes, I'm sure there'll be bad, Bad animal ethics committees out there, like they're, they're, they're bad veterinarians out there. Um, but but I think overall um, that they do very very well. I haven't had any experience with animal ethics committees in in other regions of the world, so I don't know what the the quality of them is um, generally. But I'm, but I'm sure with the focus being put on animal animal rights and and thinking about the um, animal animal care generally um, worldwide that. Um, the spotlight's being put on them. So the pressure's on to get it right um, for the animals. If I, so, that's a bit of a long-winded answer there, Mark. But
0: um, <laughs> If, if, if um, I was one of those three million mice involved in experiments in 2016, I would want you on my ethics committee, my animal ethics committee. I'd want you on it, Brendan. You'd be arguing <laughs> for me.
1: I would be, I would be until you were um, what gutted and um, dissected and um, and tossed away like a, another one of the millions of mice that is um, experimented on, you know. There you go. There's my cynic. Maybe that's why I got kicked off the <laughs> Animal Ethics Committee. As you know, I actually, no, I've resigned um, at the end because I just found it quite challenging, um, um, not just, not just um, emotionally challenging, but also with, with trying to fit in with all the other, the other pies that I have my fingers in, Mark, um, because I always, always, even up until now, as you know, I have difficulty saying no to things, so I end up doing too many things that I should um, be saying no to um, and and concentrating on just doing enough. Um, We can't solve all the world's um, problems. And, um, you know, it's always nice to be invited to do things like this, but um, I think we need to spend a bit more time Taking photos, Mark, and spending time with the family and all those uh, things.
0: So, yeah. work life balance.
1: Yes, yes. Which is another episode we should um, introduce again soon. So let's get on to our main topic, which is nothing to do with the work life balance. And for those of you in Australia, will know exactly what this topic is about with the title of the topic called Spewing. <laughs> you uh,
0: love saying that. Is- Say it again.
1: <laughs> spewing, which is the Australian vernacular for vomiting. Um, and I'm sure maybe some people in the rest of the world do know the term spewing. But um, and I know you've been spewing your guts out a little bit um, over the years, Mark, after imbibing too much, especially when you're a student from the stories that I hear. Um, so we're going to talk about vomiting in dogs. And what we were going to do was the top ten, or the top fifteen, or the top twenty or so things to think about when you are pre- presented with an acute vomiting case in a dog, and and I think our our angle on this, Mark, wasn't wasn't it? It was going to be um, for new graduates and for veterinary technicians or nurses. But I always think, um, Brendan,
0: I think it is good for us to pitch this at you know um, at uh, at the the, the relatively Um, starting things but I always every time we have one of these and um, and we focus on the basics as it were I always pick up one or two you know new points or different opinions so I think it's worth just starting with the basics so what is the number one basic step when we're talking about vomiting dogs Brendan?
1: Number one, gee, you're putting me on the um, just me cr- like in, in, not, in... not not not, <laughs> not number one,
0: the main thing. Number one, the first. Thing. My number one is look.
1: My number one, well, my first thing is to look at the patient. Look at the patient, and that's probably not the number one in our little no, list no, that we wrote down at all. Um, before this, mate. But um, I always look at the animal. So look at the animal and ignore what the client is saying to you because. We may miss a whole lot of other things that are going on there. That client brings that dog in and says, Help me, my dog is vomiting. And then I say, Okay, chill, relax. Let's have a look at your dog, and we'll pick up all the other problems it has: the heart murmur, the hip dysplasia, um, the cushions disease, whatever that is happening in that dog. So, um, I think it's really important, especially for new graduates and, and for veterinary technicians or nurses too, who who may be doing a pre pre examination or, or pre veterinary examination on on the animal. That we tend, and I do too, we tend to get blinkered and that we just concentrate on the problem that the animal's been brought in for. So that's probably my first thought, Mark, is that we need to think about what else is wrong with this animal um, apart from the fact it's coming in for vomiting and don't forget to do a thorough clinical examination of the dog. So that's what I would start off with um, mentioning, Mark. What's your first um, or number two? <laughs> well, what are we going to talk my, about number, my number two. two? number two
0: is, um, is to try and collect as... Detail the history as you possibly can. Um, and uh, obviously many of these histories will, you know, be potted and have holes in them and, um, and you won't be able to get everything. But um, very often you will pick up, you know, the classic, the absolute first thing you learned in vet school is that um, uh, there was a party on the weekend, the dog You know, there was a big barbecue at the party and the dog got all the sausages. Um, That's really important to know. Um, So just taking the time to uh, get through that history. Um, We, in fact, had a uh, um, not many of our local practices like to deal with PAVO cases, and we were lucky enough to have um, uh, um, one of those cases uh, come to us uh, uh, today, in fact, and... um, and we have a nice isolation ward, so it's good for us to set those animals up and um, give them the best possible treatment. Fortunately, the tests were all negative and um, the main, dog's main problem uh, on presentation was uh, that um, it was vomiting um, it did later develop diarrhea but um, the history once searched through did reveal that the dog had had access to um, you know an unusual part of the yard and probably had access to some things in a shed, maybe some fertiliser, which may have set the whole thing off. So history is my next thing. Make sure you do a detailed history. And remember, um, that dogs are garbage cars. they Dietary indiscretion is one of the more common things that we find. So if we can identify an episode of dietary indiscretion, um, that might allow us to... Uh, um, provide an explanation for that episode of vomiting well definitely
1: and i think uh, that part one or part two of what you were mentioning there is think about what's happening in your regional area so if parvo is parvo virus is going around then you need to put that on the list high on the list of the differentials that are happening if you're having a sausage sizzle um, because it's sausage sizzle weekend in your region, then you need to think about um, um, pancreatitis with the, with the dogs that are coming in. So, yeah, definitely. Number three, Mark, um, I'll take. Number three is how sick is the dog? So we do our clinical examination of the patient and we start to think, do we have a critical patient in front of us. Um, And if we do, then we get stuck into stabilising it. So the old old keep the animal alive while we try and find out what is happening with that animal. So that's just getting back to basics and doing our thorough clinical examination and then stopping once we decide that, hey, this animal's about to dropped dead on us and we need to take it out the back and get it on a drip and, and start to do some some intensive um, care on that particular animal there. So that is that would be um, one of the early things that I would be thinking of there, Mark. So we'll call that number three. So what's well, number just before
0: four? you leave number three, Brendan, um, uh, what sort of clues would you use to, you know, besides the dog has a temperature, it's lethargic, it's flat, it's greater than five percent dehydrated. Um, is there anything else you'd look for in your physical exam to say, "Geez, we need to crank this diagnostic and supportive program up for the treatment of this animal"? What other things would you look for?
1: Well, the obvious ones there, marker, and hopefully your, your your little hint there is um, getting through to me. It's looking at gums. It's looking at capillary refill time. Is that it, you lift up the gums? Lift up the lip on that animal or look in the conjunctiva. And if it looks really muddy, it looks like it's has a refill time of, of three seconds um if the dog is really struggling to walk into the into the room. Um so um I'd be panicking about well I wouldn't be panicking, I'd be getting very worried about that that particular dog. When we're checking the temperature of it, has it got a raging pyrexia going on there? So for those of us here in Australia, if it's a, a pyrexia of Say so if it had a 41 degrees, 42 degrees Celsius um, temperature, I'd be getting very, very worried with that animal. Um, is it, um, Extremely lethargic? Is it non-responsive? It may be brought in. Oh, my dog's vomiting, and they, they carry it in in a blanket. Gee, I'd be getting a little bit worried about that that dog. Um, so I'd especially concentrate on the cardiovascular system. Mark is is probably my bottom line with that. Um, so auscultate in its chest as well and seeing what that heart's. Or listening to to that heart there. So that's a, that's the things I'd be worried about um, with the the animal that I need to take out the back.
0: What oh, I was just going to tell you. Now the thing you've nailed all the most important ones, but for support people um, at our hospital, if someone was to phone up and go, Oh my god, my dog is vomiting, um, can I rush it down? They, oh, yes, I think <laughs> uh, you're going to say now, yes, I, I, would get, go ahead. I, would, I would encourage all staff to, particularly now people have smartphones, and um, they don't necessarily have to get the people to bring some of the vomit in, um, but even that's okay. But even a photograph of the vomitus. Um, can give us some clues about maybe what the you know dog um, has actually eaten, or obviously if there's coffee grounds in there, we're worried about ulceration leading to bleeding, or if there's bile, these are all good clues. So a, uh, a bit of a photo of the vomit is where I was headed, Brennan.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. So smartphones, dumb people. Um, that's what I tend to see my um, my clinic mark um, and I'm talking about myself when I'm trying to use my my iPhone so what's number number four well,
0: this mark? one I'm a little bit um, lost with Brendan because I'll need your help I will need your help um the the uh, the first thing I do once I do have a dog that um, that has uh, you know that we're happy that's stable is that I want to um, have the gut rested I want the uh, know the gut the particular stomach has obviously been irritated um, and um, is just sensitive and anything you put in there um, it's likely that um, uh, that the dog is just going to go you know we're not having any of that so not putting anything in there for a period of time is an excellent choice I reckon so resting the gut I want to get get an idea from you of how long you would do that for brendan before you would trial your dog with some uh bland food
1: probably 12 to 24 hours um, as as a minimum with the classic garbage guts that i'd be suspecting for these ones that i'd be saying to the client look let's rest the gut and and the whole aim there for the technicians and I suppose the new graduates or they should be taught this at university is to don't put food in there to irritate the gut and, and that dog can survive quite Happily and readily by just rest in the gut. Even if it's your Labrador that loves to eat, rest that gut, and it's, it's literally that simple, isn't it, Mark? It's just not putting food in there. I do. What do you, I'm going to put push this one back on you? What do you recommend to the what do you recommend to the clients as far as giving them fluids um, at home? So when we are resting the gut, we may be saying do not feed your dog at all for X amount of hours and. I'd like your opinion on how long you rest the gut for. Um, but what do you mention to the clients about how much to let their dog drink
0: during that questions, period? Brendan, um, I, there's, um, I'm there's i much the same as you. If I can keep a dog from um, vomiting for 12 to 24 hours, then that's when we will reintroduce, um, you know, uh, some ID, some bland, maybe white meat Um small volumes of course um, so the as far as uh hydration goes um the key thing i find there is um temperature and volume that if we give a dog a big drink of cold water and um, that seems to be irritating enough stretches the stomach changes the local blood flow and they're very likely to go not nah, not having any of that um, and so tepid water in small volumes um uh, you know enough that the dog can lap at for only 10 seconds or so and then taking it away but doing that frequently if the dog's not vomiting um that's the sort of way we go with fluids we definitely don't want them to continue to be dehydrated um, but um but we also don't want to overdo it by filling them up too quickly
1: well, it's pretty similar to what we recommend, or I recommend, Mark. Just just small amounts of um, um, frequent amounts, small <laughs> amounts of of water every every so often. Yeah, rather than just putting down that whole bucket of water and letting them go crazy, um, and then vomiting it up. With those coffee grounds, Mark, that might be then, then start to um come out of the um mouth of that dog. Um, what do you use for antiemetics in And so number five, I suppose, would be um, do we use an antiemetic in it, in in these garbage guts or these uncomplicated, if we can call them that, um, vomiting dogs? Um, what choices have we there, Mark, with our antiemetics And and when would you use one, or when would you just sit back and say, look? Your dog's vomited once or twice, and it's only vomited. The last time it vomited was was two hours ago. It seems quite good on clinical examination. There's no obvious temperature there. There's no mild abdominal guarding. Um, it's refill times fine. Um, we've done basic bloods in house, and they were all clear. Would you be giving that dog an antiemetic? I probably, I
0: I, I probably wouldn't. I probably would be. Um, reserving the antiemetic drugs for those dogs that we just can't stop them from vomiting. I think if there's one or two episodes, um, and particularly if we're in a situation where we can monitor that stuff closely, um, I, I really try not to use... Um, too many antiemetics too early. Um, I do think that there's all, like I, one of the things I worry about, Brendan, when I'm working with these cases are those dogs that have a, uh, a gastrointestinal foreign body and they might, um, they're funny cases because they look, you know, not too bad often and yet the dog can be plugged up completely um, and, and I definitely don't want to, um, uh, you know, provide a circumstance by using antiemetics and stopping the dog from emptying out its stomach where things are going to get complicated down in there so i really want to get my diagnosis right and take advantage of treating those clinical signs when they're significant to the dog so yeah i'm a bit guarded with my um my antiemetics i've gone through a bit of a cycle brendan i um i probably used to use a lot of uh of metoclopramide, Maxilon's one of the trade names, and um, and uh, and I found it useful, but maybe not as reliable as um, as you know for those dogs that are really at the stage where you're trying to stop them um, from throwing up everything they've got in their gut. Um, but then uh, we've obviously got Serenia um, Maropitant, uh, which now probably is my first choice. Um, and um, but I also uh, love the fact that um, ranitidine, as well as being a prokinetic, it has anti-emetic effects as well. So I've got a bit of a choice there, Brendan, and um, probably serenia is the one I go with first when I do use them, which is not all the time. Well, my situation
1: would be... Fairly similar as usual, Mark, um, with what what you um, are are currently doing. Um, The only comment I would have on your comments would be what um, with your ranitidine. So um, you're obviously giving that orally with them. Are you going to be worried that this dog is then going to vomit after giving that?
0: That's a great question because so many, um, even um, you know, there are times where we'll have. Uh, dogs that vomit intermittently and um, and and chronically intermittently and we might send them home with some uh, serenia and um, and so uh, that's a very um, complicated thing because you know first of all it's expensive um, but um, what do you do if they continue to vomit? Um, uh, I think I um, I'm pretty happy to use. Uh, ranitidine intravenously when I've got um, intravenous lines and the dogs are still vomiting. I probably, uh, there are some cases where I'll use it uh, per oz, um, but um, usually if I'm, uh, because maropitant has probably a more profound immediate antiematic effect, that's the one I'd go for first. Does that make sense? Have I been waffling more than usual?
1: No, that makes perfect sense, Mark. Um, what did you say? <laughs> very good, very good. So um, that that leads us on to our next sort of um, um, point. We're probably up to number six or seven here. In um, what other potential medications may you be using in these um, animals? And and I think we're both very similar in that we majority of these garbage guts type cases um, we do nothing um, apart from to give them some time for the gut to recover and for the vomiting to to cease if it hasn't already ceased mark So we don't feed them we feed them very small amounts of um, a little bit of water um, every now and again and we give them some time. And oh, I think it's a guesstimate, but I'd say probably 80 or 90 percent of these cases they're, they're back to normal within 12 or 24 hours and then we're just slowly reintroducing a bland diet um, back into that that animal and we may never even know what set that dog off in the first place because the owner didn't find, or we didn't do the diagnostics to, to work out that yes, it did have a bit of a chew on the, on the magic mushrooms in the backyard, or, or a, or a dead bird or a possum or something like that that it got stuck into or, or the got into the garbage bin, um, hence the garbage guts. Um, in, um, so I'd, I'd be interested to see if you have sort of similar sort of feelings as far as the percentage of these animals that just get better with doing nothing. Um, and um, we often don't end up um, getting a true diagnosis as far as what Set it off in the well, first. And point. I think
0: that that you hit the nail on the head. That um, even with some of them, even if you poured a whole heap of diagnostics in, and unless you were to um, be lucky enough to get a sample of vomitus with the offending material in it, you, you often don't know uh, what they've gotten into. And certainly, um, lots of clients will guarantee you. Um, we've had this happen before where we've been guaranteed there's nothing this dog can get into. There is absolutely nothing. The next time they come in vomiting, the clients reiterate there's nothing they could possibly be at. What are you talking about? Garbage guts, dietary indiscretion. But then the third time the clients catch them in the garage chewing on whatever it is um, and all of a sudden it becomes apparent that um, they do have access all along. And so I think it is, as you say, Um, the case that uh, I don't know I I would have to look across our statistics but I would suspect maybe out of eight out of ten we never find out and like you said 24 hours later maybe 48 hours later they're largely back to normal. So for this reason I would um, we were talking about the possibility of what medications we might use and and I'm not much the same surprisingly enough I'm much the same as you I would be very it would be the most unusual circumstance for us to use antibiotics in these cases. I don't think that um, infectious causes are a significant, um, you know, proportion of the cases we get to see. So certainly antibiotics are not first cab off the rank. And even um, in, you know, there are many situations where we can justify the use of antibiotics because infection is a likely secondary consequence of the disease we're talking about. With vomiting, I don't think that's one of them. I think uh, we're much better off to um, to uh, treat symptomatically, as you said, rest the gut, make sure they stay they stay hydrated, um, and pretty much do nothing else. I noticed that you were talking about bismuth bismuth salicylate, Brendan. Tell me about your bismuth.
1: My, my, it's none of your business, Mark. Um, so keep your little fingers out of it. Um, yes, I still. Dispense occasionally some bismuth solution for those dogs that they just seem to be a really grumbly gut. And I suppose what I should be using with those ones is thinking maybe more along the lines of our, of our gut protectants, like, um, our, our, um, ranitidine, um, type ones instead. But I do have a bit basic bismuth type solution that, um, I sometimes still dispense to these classic garbage gut, um, Dogs out there, Mark. Um, the reason why I had that down in there is 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 to contrast that um, with the, the antibiotics. And I think, unfortunately, we still occasionally see um, or hear of cases, um, especially um, some inexperienced um, veterinarians. Some maybe experienced, where they do put them on antibiotics and, and even do some other questionable um, treatments that that may even include things like treating them with um, corticosteroids as well, as, as this shotgun therapy for these garbage gut animals. So it was more to contrast with those sorts of things. But um I don't know whether you have any of those basic sort of um bismuth gut protectorant, um, gut lining, um toxic absorbing supposed um products um in your practice mark. But I, I still occasionally dispense um, one of those basic sort of um oral bismuth solutions for those what I call the um intermediate Garbage gut cases that that has had several vomits and they're still a little bit distressed um, and it may be that case where I have given it an injection of an antiemetic as well. Um, they're the cases that I may also send home with with one of these gut type, um, protectant um, or gut lining slash um,
0: toxin absorptive pr, um, products. And I think so I that's think there's that good, um, you know, you and I both love our evidence. We love, you know, following through uh, with techniques and procedures and medications that we know there's evidence for. And I think there is evidence for, just as you describe that, Particular circumstance, um, you've, they're bad enough that you've used some aropitant, and uh, and adding the bismuth solutions to settle the gut is not a bad choice, and there's good evidence that it's uh, likely to help speed the process of recovery.
1: And and don't forget. Um dear listeners, and me. <laughs> um, that potentially we we're, we're dealing with a whole heap of other 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 serious um life threatening conditions that might be causing these this um, acute vomiting in dogs we're we're primarily talking about our our classic garbage guts um so differentiating. Um, between our garbage guts and these other conditions, and some of these can be very, very complex or, or multifactorial conditions. Mark, um, is our is our diagnostic workup so? do you want to just quickly run through um the potential diagnostics that we would consider with these cases if if we we just think it's not quite classic for this um garbage guts or it's a garbage gut that is that is a little bit more unwell than we we usually see with them so what sort of what sort of diagnostic testing would you think would be appropriate for well, some we of
0: probably these? um uh or you know regularly choosing between um, radiographs and some blood work to start with for most of the cases that we see that aren't settling down quite as quickly as we would normally want. Um, And I suppose we're trying to make a decision about whether we have a uh, you know, a physical disease, uh, a uh, foreign body type arrangement, um, which might be more quickly revealed by radiography, um, or whether we have some metabolic problem that um, that uh, the blood work's going to reveal. So, they're probably our first two diagnostic um, steps. Um, we'll often include, you know, the the, uh, um, the canine pancreatic. Uh, um, the CPL-like lipase, there's canine-specific pancreatic lipase um, test. But um, I've got far less trusting of those tests. Um, I definitely have had cases where uh, they've been um, positive and uh, and I doubt that that's been a true positive. And, geez, I think we get a lot of, um, of uh false negatives as well. So uh, while we do run those tests to give us some guidance, I don't rely on them absolutely, Brendan. And the other thing I think uh, is useful, um, we probably these days are a little bit more likely to, um, if we do get to go down the path of um, um, using radiographs, we're probably more quickly using contrast medium rather than waiting several days before we try and get them to have some contrast medium in their gut we probably are looking to do that sort of thing a little bit earlier as well so are there other tests that you would use in your diagnostic workup
1: i think you covered most of them i mean the other i suppose ultrasound um since we've been chatting about ultrasound in the last couple of episodes um yeah the 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 contrast agents um definitely worthwhile with them but yeah i think it for me, it's really getting back to basics and looking at the animal and looking at the patient and doing a, a repeat on that clinical examination is the first thing I would be looking at, palpating that abdomen, looking at those vital signs of that, that animal, um, looking at any, um, any of that vomitus and if it's starting to get diarrhea as well, looking at the, the feces as well. So it's, it's, it's nothing too, too complex. It's just um, um, reassessing the animal um, and deciding, hey, it's not, it's not responding the way it typically does for this classic garbage guts. What else is going on with this? And have I have I misdiagnosed this? And that's when I start to dig a bit deeper deep with the diagnostics and and get stuck into those. Um, you know, probably. It's only that one or two out of the ten that, that would be um having the radiographs and the, the more um the more involved work up with them, Mark, um or be admitted into the clinic for, for more intensive sort of treatment with them. Um yes. So I think you've covered most of it. So um in the last couple of minutes that we've got, because as usual we've gone over time here, Mark, um, we need to talk about um, the next, next, um, what do we do after that with them? Um, what do we need to do with that animal that's well, getting I'm better? I'm really though? pleased
0: that you pointed this out because this is one of the most important things I think um, that we need to maintain a dialogue. We need to communicate with the client. Lots of these dogs will um, will uh, um, get better, as you pointed out. Maybe as many as eighty percent of them, 24, 48 hours are back to normal. Um, some of them. Um, will have ongoing problems and um, if they've been sent home, the owners will often think, oh, Mark didn't understand my problem properly and he hasn't figured it out Um, and they might even move on to another veterinary hospital or worse, they might think that everything's okay and go off to work and if it is one of those 10 to 20% that have a more serious problem, um, things can go bad. So calling them up and talking to them, Brendan, that's critically important. Organising a progress exam, not waiting for two or three weeks, but uh, organising for them to come in in three or four days and have a feel of that belly, double-check that hydration status, um, uh, and just continue to try and figure out through the history and the response to treatment, Um, what the underlying cause might be and and try and prevent a repeat of the issue. Um, I think um, they're the things I would, they're the final um, points I would make in our, our, we've talked about a list of 10, but I think we've um, stretched it out to 20 individual points.
1: (laughs) I I think we are. And that that point you make about calling the owner or contacting them, um, even if it's just... um, um, it may not be the veterinarian; it may be the veterinary technician or nurse that's doing that. It, it's really essential, isn't it? Even for those simple garbage gut cases that are pretty mild, and it may have only had one vomit, and the client has come in, and, and it may have just been for reassurance that they came in to see you. Um, phoning them and contacting them the next day um, is is critical as far as practice management. I think um, in that you're letting them know that you're still you're still. Um, concerned about their pets and you're concerned about them and you're spending, you're doing the right thing um, by everybody there and, and you will occasionally pick up one that was potentially deteriorating um, that the owner thought that, hey, um, my animal was doing okay and you quiz them during that phone call and you realise things are not quite right um, with them. So, yes, um Good practice management, Mark. By by contacting and following up your cases is essential. And you know, um, my last little story, Mark. You know, I love to tell a bit of a story. I used to panic when I first graduated. um, In that first six, I was going to say six months. It was probably the first six years (laughs) um, when I would see a patient, and then I wouldn't see them again um, for several days. And I would turn up to work, and I'd be quizzing my my nurses saying hey what happened to little Fido and they would say I don't know and uh, I would be panicking and majority of and it took me a while to realise that no news is good news the vast majority of the time isn't it Mark I mean if you haven't heard back from them the animal most of the time um, will have got better Um, but I used to panic and I used to be coming into work the next day thinking oh no is Fido still alive from his or her garbage guts and um, because I hadn't heard from them and and it took me a while to realise that, hey, these are the cases that I should be phoning up and contacting the client and being proactive and saying, is Fido all right? And they would be saying, no, Fido mm-hmm. died last night. I took him to another veterinarian. Um, no, hopefully not.
0: Um, yeah. Do you mean to say, Brendan, do you well, mean there to say go. that this sense of panic will end <laughs> sometime? <sighs>
1: Um yes. <laughs> well, Mark, I think we've covered only a tiny tiny little bit of vomiting in dogs and I want to I've added a few more possible potential podcast topics um, to our potential list of podcast topics sort of future that we'll be chatting about um, with gastrointestinal problems in dogs. And um, I think we need to, from what I've heard from a couple of our listeners, spend a little bit more time on the non-exotic pets, although they seem to all love our little stories about unusual pets and the common conditions in unusual pets. They also do want us to chat about dog and cat medicine as well and dog and cat surgery as well so we'll try and endeavor to include some of them in the future mark so um, send in your emails and um, your little comments and um, requests for what particular topics you want us to cover in the future and we'll probably ignore them and thanks for listening this week and we'll talk to you all next week